Hey, Hales, does my computer monitor look a little sharper? What do you mean? You know, like, in the image quality, does it look a little sharper? I mean, I guess maybe a little bit? <laughs> Thanks. I just changed the display settings to my New Year's resolution. Morning. The following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you whenever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson. And I'm Haley. And welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists he'll never be able to play like. And topics or tips about guitars and music recording. Okay, so it's no secret that we've been gone for a fat minute again. Unfortunately, I got really caught up in work, both on the actual boring adult work side and working with a client on the recording side and the guitar repair side. But I did get to do a nice little business trip to Hawaii where I got to pick up a few pedals. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your trip? Well, um, from the non-guitar side, it's always cool getting to go to Hawaii. It's not my first time. I was there last in like 2015 or 2017. I don't remember. But uh, this time we went to Oahu. So if you're not familiar with Hawaii, uh, Hawaii is like an archipelago island chain. And the actual big island is called Hawaii, even though the whole archipelago is called Hawaii. But the island that we went to is like the real touristy destination. It's an island called Oahu, and it's where the places like Waikiki and Honolulu are at. Well, the largest point on Oahu is called Mount Kala. It's a super beautiful hike. It took us maybe like four or five hours. And at the top, you get to this like uh, Navy radar station or Air Force radar station, something like that. But it was really cool. Uh, the only bad thing was that we got the, what we were told was the true Hawaiian experience because our rental car got broken into. Um, where you have to park to hike Mount Kala is in this town called Waianae, which is the not so great side of Hawaii. And uh, yeah, we were just lucky that we didn't actually lock the car. So I guess you can't say that we got broken into if we didn't lock it. But otherwise, uh, we were told our windows probably would have been broken open. They didn't get much. There was just like a few small things in the trunk that they stole. But I mean, other than that, it was cool. I liked going to Hawaii. It was a blast. Um, yeah, 10 out of 10 would go again. Now tell us what we all really want to know. What pedals did you get? Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, this is certainly not a tourism podcast. It's definitely a guitar and gear podcast. So why don't we start with the Jackson Audio Silvertone Twin 12. Uh, I was really excited. This was the first pedal that I picked up when I was there. Um, I know that I'm not most people, but uh, when I go on vacation, I make it a point to visit like the local guitar shops. And uh, this is the first thing that I saw. What do you mean? I love you, but you're a nerd. There is nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that? Nothing, nothing, nothing. <sighs> well, I saw this thing and I got excited. I remember when the Twin 12 came out and I was like, oh, you know, I got to check that out because I love amp in a box pedals. Uh, this one is a Jackson Audio and Silvertone collaboration. Um, it is an amp in a box based off of the old Silvertone Twin 12 Model 1484 amplifier. Amp in a box pedals are what really excite me just because they're a way, in my opinion, I mean, they're really useful tools. If you want the tone of like a very expensive or very hard to get amplifier, amp in a box pedals are a great way to get 98% of the way to that tone, especially if you don't plan to use that sound all the time. I mean, there's something that you can save a ton of money and not to mention save a ton of space by just getting away with one of these for whatever track you need it on. So the 1484 is an old two-channel amplifier that was sold by Sears' house brand, Silvertone. It had controls for volume, treble, and bass on each channel, along with a spring reverb unit and a tremolo circuit with controls for speed and strength. Now this version of the pedal has controls for gain. Um, it kind of doesn't make sense because the old amp didn't have gain, but one of the things that you could do with the original 1484 was jumper the two channels together and control the individual volumes of each in order to clip one channel with the other. So this gain knob kind of takes the function of that. 
And then you've got treble, bass, and your output volume. So for this demo, I've hooked it up to an impulse response of an actual twin 12 cabinet so we can hear the amp as it was meant to sound. And I've got to say, while I'm a sucker for those like older limited control tube amps because they've got a certain sound to them, I really don't know if I'd call this one my favorite. Why do you say that? Well, I love the really raw, fizzy, chaotic sort of distortion of a really pushed vintage amplifier like the Fender 57 Champ or a vintage Supro, but this guy just seems to be really dark. I know it's popular with people like Beck, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys, but this one just isn't my favorite. So what I'm hearing is we can sell it then? Whoa! Nobody said anything about that. I still like it, and it has its uses. It's just not my favorite. You know what? Let's just get into the demo. Okay. So that was like the dead stock clean sound of that uh, amp in a box pedal. But now let's take that gain knob, let's crank it a little bit, get a little breakup on there so you can hear how it sounds being used as an actual, you know, overdrive. <laughs> What'd you think? I unfortunately have to agree with you. I don't really like it that much. Yeah, I mean, it's just very dark. Um, I really don't know what else to say about it. It's got its uses for sure. Like, I can definitely see cases where you'd want this. I know uh, Reverend Peyton of Reverend Peyton and his big damn band swears by this thing for folk music. But he's also using a resonator guitar as a slide guitar with a lot of like finger picking, and that's got a very bright tone inherent to it. So I think the 1484's, you know, bass heavy sound sort of complements that. But if you didn't like that, the next one that I got is honestly kind of ironic. Next up is the Earthquaker Devices Eruptor. I mean, I'm not an Earthquaker fanboy by any means. I totally don't have an Earthquaker flag hanging in my studio. I don't have an Earthquaker coffee mug that I'm drinking out of right now, and we definitely don't have matching Earthquaker hats, because that would be weird, right? I'm surprised you don't have an Earthquaker tattoo at this point. Oh, come on, now you're giving me ideas. I mean, I've got plenty of room left on the, uh, the skin canvas. Okay, that came out wrong. <laughs> That's the, the skin canvas. There's so many better ways that you could have phrased that. Well, I mean, you know, like, like, Art goes on a canvas, and and in this case, you know, tattoos are art, and they're going on my body. Oh, that sounds like some Hannibal Lecter stuff. That or uh, if you're a Doctor Who fan, you, 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 if you know, you know. You know what I mean. Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I picked this one up because it's actually discontinued now, I believe. But what's unique about it is it's a modern take on a silicon transistor fuzz face circuit, but it's only got a single control, big fat bias knob. So what does that actually do? Fuzz face circuits normally have at least a fuzz and a volume control. Yeah, you're not right. It's definitely more- I'm not right? 
You're not wrong. You said I'm not right. <laughs> it's late, all right? If you guys didn't know, I mean, obviously you didn't know, we spent probably like two hours fixing problems in Cubase earlier because for some reason we were getting all this weird popping that had never shown up before. Turns out it was just as simple as a latency adjustment. And, uh, you know, I like restarted my computer, uh, ripped some suspect RAM out of it, did all kinds of surgery on the computer, and uh, I'm tired, so forgive me if I say a word wrong. Right. You're not wrong. It's definitely <laughs> more limited than other fuzz face takes. The way this pedal was actually designed, according to Jamie Stillman, the owner of Earthquaker Devices, is that what would be the volume and fuzz controls are just permanently maxed out in the circuit, just like many people already use their fuzz faces. With this guy, you're leaving those two maxed, but now you have control over the bias of the transistors or the amount of voltage hitting the transistor, in other words. Lower bias, or lower voltage, starves the transistor and gets it a more sputtery, gated sound, while a higher voltage will make your fuzz sound louder and woollier with more low-end content. It's a pretty unique feature. Okay, that makes sense. So it's sort of like a dying battery? Yeah, you kind of beat me to the last pedal that we're going to talk about, but uh, yeah, a dying battery is a great example of lowering the bias. So what's so ironic about it? Well, you know, it's the eruptor. It's got a volcano on it, and Hawaii has a bunch of volcanoes. You're a loser. Just play the demo. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty cold. <laughs> All right, here's the eruptor. Uh, first up, we're going to play it with uh, a high bias setting. And here's with that bias control set at about noon. And lastly, here's with that bias control set just above its lowest point. So what'd you think about that one? So I actually liked it. And what I found interesting is I could actually hear the the audio breaking up. Like you've shown me pedals, you're like, oh, it's it's breaking up and then the distortion. Meh, meh, meh. But uh, I have a hard time picking it out exactly when you're talking about it. You're like, oh, this breaks up more than this one. But I could hear it really well in that that pedal. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially on that last demo, when you start to starve those transistors of voltage, they really get that super Velcro-y sort of thing that I love. I mean, it's a sound that's not for everybody. Um, it It's not a stable fuzz when the bias is down like that, but it's something that sounds really, really cool to me, especially with like some deep ringing power chords. It's super cool just to hear that fuzz sort of fall apart, at least in my opinion. So the third thing that I picked up was something really weird. It's another sort of meme pedal. I honestly think that we've had two in the house that we've made jokes about. Uh, just talking about like how bad they may or may not be, how straight up unusable they may or may not be. The first one being the boss metal zone and the other, of course, being the gonculator. You just wanted to say that, didn't you? Of course I did. <laughs> well, the DoD Gonculator has been a meme in our house for quite a long time, really just because of the name. It caught my eye because of things like the Gonk Droid in Star Wars, and I'm assuming you just really liked how silly the name was. Oh, of course. If you're not properly acquainted with the Gonculator, allow us to introduce you to it. This five-knob wonder was a DoD pedal that first came about in the 90s, and it's a ring modulator with much more control than the standard Dan Armstrong Green Ringer clone. 
It's more of a dedicated ring modulator than just an analog octave up. Here we've got controls for output, ring modulated output, frequency to adjust where a ring modulator sits, as well as, curiously, distortion and gain. Now, I really don't know how useful this thing is. Can make you smile. Try saying gonculator without smiling. Okay, fair. I don't think you could do that. Like, I think, I'm just imagining, what's a, what's a mean-looking guitar player? Mean? Yeah. Like, who looks mean? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Uh, automatically, off the rip, I want to say Mick Thompson, but that's mostly because of the mask, and you wouldn't be able to see him smile anyway. But I'm just trying to think of somebody that looks angry all the time, and imagining them saying gonculator yeah, in, like, a... Yeah, use a gonculator. I know, I can't. I, I don't <laughs> think that's a word that you can take yourself seriously saying. Either way, uh, I know ring mods were pretty popular with like Primus and they were used on the South Park theme and one or two of Black Sabbath songs, but they just sound so out there that I really don't see them being the most useful thing. It's all the craziness of a monophonic octaver or a synth pedal, but without the octave. Let's see what it sounds like. So yeah, that was the DoD gonculator. I think it sounded gonktastic. Although, gonktastic. I don't think that you really gave it enough credit with what you played. I think you you should have played something that droned out a little better. It you, sounds the it, same. You know what it, it sounds like from that demo. <laughs> no, it gets a lot of credit. It's a cool sounding pedal. There's nothing else other than other ring modulators, like a ring stinger or something. But there's nothing else that sounds like that circuit. Uh, what you see is what you get. What you heard in that demo is what you get if you pick one up. It's something that's really just fun to play around with. But the real curiosity here is this distortion circuit. Now, I had it blended in just a little bit in that last demo because, you know, the ring modulator sounds pretty dry without it, I'll be honest. Even though there's a lack of, you know, any tone control on this distortion circuit, it actually smacks. <laughs> It's a little bees in a can-ish. Uh, it's really bright, but with humbuckers and a darker sounding amp, I really can't see it sounding too bad at all. I'm a really big fan of it. Just take a listen to the distortion circuit by itself. like it, but I, I definitely wasn't expecting that from the gonculator. Right? You get a ring mod pedal and you're like, oh, okay, a distortion, whatever. But like, I would get that just for the distortion circuit. <laughs> well, you have, a, you have a problem with buying distortion pedals, so. Well, okay, so complete transparency here. Uh, we're going to be doing an episode on the history of DoD soon. It's in the shoot. Um, we actually have ideas planned out for these next episodes. That way we're not gone and fall off the face of the earth for six months at a time again. But uh, from what I was doing on my preliminary research, I'm not done yet. We'll talk more about it when we get there. Um, it seems like that distortion circuit in the gonculator is the same as the DoD grunge, the pedal that was famous for Kurt Cobain. Um, so that might explain why that distortion circuit sounds really good. That definitely makes a lot more sense. Yeah. All in all, it's a really cool pedal. If you're looking for something just weird, maybe instead of a Miku stomp, go classic and pick up a gonculator. Now, the last thing that I picked isn't really a pedal in itself, and I'm kind of behind the curve on this guy, but it's the JHS Vulture. <laughs> Get it? Vulture? That's what makes you laugh? It's that easy? Oh, come on. It's a cute little play on words. The Vulture essentially acts as like a starving battery simulator. Uh, some of the Voodoo Labs power supplies had this feature on them. Uh, you run your cable into the Vulture, and it's got a second 9-volt jack for power output. 
So you take another barrel connector, connect that to your favorite fuzz, and you're off to the races. The single knob on it controls the amount of voltage being applied to the pedal, where seven and a quarter volts is at the top of the range, and one and a quarter volts is at the bottom of the range. So it's basically a bias control. Yeah, um, close enough. Uh, except instead of just biasing a transistor, the vulture is biasing the entire circuit, if that makes sense. Um, it's adding a bias control to a pedal that doesn't already have one. It can really only be used with analog, low-current draw pedals in the vein of, like, overdrives, distortions, and fuzzes. I've shot it out with a few of my different pedals just to see how it goes. The overdrive, getting starved, isn't really anything special. Same with most distortions. But using it with a fuzz really does help you achieve that gated, sputtery sound. Here I'm using it with my Tonebender Mark I clone, one of the pedals that I built from Analog Noir kits while we were taking a little break. And it works extremely well. We'll start with the knob all the way up, and after the first phrase, we'll continue to turn it down bit by bit till we hit the bottom of the range. it got a little bit quieter and cleaner i mean yeah for sure uh starving any pedal of its voltage will lower its overall output um it does starve the transistors in the circuit so it starts to break up a little bit more um it'll get a little more velcro-y but overall it's a pretty useful tool for if you want a different sound out of your fuzz i know a couple episodes ago we threw a fuzz pedal in the freezer to try to uh mess with the bias of the germanium transistors <laughs> And uh, this is a much safer way of doing that, so you don't uh, get condensation all over your pedal and risk ruining it. But it was still, uh, it's a cool little tool. I like it, especially for something like 80 bucks or whatever it is. It's fun to play around with. The last, I guess, big thing that I did while I was away was build a Range Master clone. Now, I have a Range Master-ish clone already, the Catalan Bread Naga Viper. And I know before we've looked at the differences between germanium and silicon before and all that, how there is a difference, but it's really not all that large. But there's always that what if factor. So I figured, why not? I'll build a vintage accurate germanium range master clone to run with my Vox just to see if I'm missing out on anything. This is the one I helped you with, right? Yeah, it is. Now, I ended up really liking it. It was a super easy build, very low parts count, but it sounds absolutely amazing, and I'm really happy with it. A buddy came over and we shot it out against his Beano Boost, since I also happen to include an input capacitor toggle switch, so they're, they have the same controls. And it was very difficult to tell any difference, other than really just the feel of it and the touch response when you're playing. I'm pretty happy with it, and I'm excited to share it with you guys. Here, you'll hear a phrase played twice through my AC-15. And then after the second time, you'll hear it with a treble booster engaged. I think it's really cool. I mean, I really enjoy having a treble booster, especially on like a Vox or a Marshall style circuit. The only thing that sort of upset me about this one, um, and I'm pretty sure you can remember me wigging out with it, was like, uh, it tends to not play well with certain power supplies. Um, and it's not even a factor of like, okay, is it isolated or not? Even running it by itself on its own power supply, it does not like some wall wards. I'm not really sure why, um, but... And once you get it, I mean, I have a whole basket full of 9-volt adapters here. And it was really a matter of just finding the right one, shooting them all out for it to stop making an insane amount of noise. I'm pretty sure you remember me freaking out about it. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Either way, the thing's a blast to play with. I'm really glad that I built it. 
it wasn't too expensive either. I think it was like a hundred bucks for everything. And it even came with like a vintage accurate case too. So it's in the actual range master style box that sits on top of your amp. It's pretty cool. Okay, so this last thing is kind of a bonus, but it's definitely the weirdest thing that I got while we were away. It was after I came back from Hawaii, but I just have to catch you guys up on this. This is something so weird that I can only find like two to three listings of it on some Korean version of Craigslist, but I got really lucky and I scored a chungus of an amplifier called a Hamony. Yeah, you heard that right. Hamony, not Harmony. Jazz Chorus 3000. This thing is basically a clone of a Roland JC120 in a head format that boasts 300 watts of output power. JC120 is normally 120 watts, right? Yeah, exactly right. 120 watts in a stereo configuration with 60 watts applied to each speaker. This guy is pushing more than the total output of a JC120 into just one speaker. To say it's loud is an understatement. Now before we really get into it, I want to do some sound demos so you all can hear exactly what this thing is actually doing. First up, here's just a dead stock clean tone with everything at noon. So, what'd you think? It sounds like a very standard amp sound. Yeah, that's one of the beautiful things about the JC120. It's got a very neutral preamp to it. It's seen as one of the best pedal platforms of all time, and it's very rare that solid-state amps gain a cult following, but this is definitely one of them. I mean, it really has a dedicated fan base. It's a great pedal platform. It's an awesome, loud, solid-state amplifier that just sounds good as it is dead stock. But that's not what the JC120 is known for, is it? I mean, it's the name, Jazz Chorus. Well, yes and no. The Jazz Chorus is an insanely good dead stock, clean, solid state amplifier. They're super loud. They're capable of stereo. They're a very clean amp. What you put into it is what you're getting out. However, you're definitely not remiss in thinking that the chorus part is what's important. The Jazz Course amplifier actually has the coveted Boss CE1 circuit in it. You know, the same circuit that, in pedal format, goes for hundreds of dollars as the original. It's one of Boss's most famous and most coveted effects for collectors. The original pedal was actually intended to mimic the core circuit of the amp, not the other way around. And this has that. It sure does. Let's take a listen. sounded really pretty. Yeah, I mean that chorus circuit is literally as close to legendary as you can get in the guitar community. Now of course, as soon as I got this thing, I had to open it up to see what was going on inside. Firstly, it needed a hefty cleaning, as well as reflowing some suspect solder joints and converting it from Korean to American power. You know, it's kind of funny that I did that because I think about like when I was a kid and I would always want to take stuff apart. My mom would complain about like me taking apart, you know, TV remote controls and uh, little drawer slides to use the bearings in them. And I had this old, like, really crappy, tiny TV that I got from my friend to put in my room. And it was like monumental for me because I was not allowed to have a TV in my room. And this was like fifth grade, but got one and it broke 
almost immediately. And I remember uh, my parents taking it away and making me throw it out because they were worried that I was going to kill myself trying to fix <laughs> it. <laughs> They're like, you're going to shock yourself. And now what do I do? But open up things that everybody on the internet says, if you don't know what you're doing, don't open them because they'll kill you. And you shock yourself. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't with this one. At least I don't think so. No, I would have remembered it. I didn't shock myself with this. <laughs> but I had to convert it to American Power, and I added a uh, you know three-pronged grounded plug because a lot of these old amplifiers, they can be pretty dangerous if they get a short in the wiring and they don't have a chassis ground. You can end up shocking yourself just by touching your guitar strings, and it can become a pretty big problem. Now, while I was in there, I was tracing out the circuit, and it seems to almost exactly follow the circuit of an 80s JC120 with a few key exceptions. It includes that coveted chorus and vibrato circuit present in the original, including the original chips from the period, as from what I can tell, this amp was manufactured in the late 70s or the early 80s, and it includes most of the same features as a genuine JC120, save for the distortion circuit that nobody used and, sadly, lacking an effects loop. With this amp lacking the distortion circuit, though, it really doesn't need an effects loop, in my opinion. You just lack the ability to use stereo effects, which kind of sucks. It honestly just seems like this Misung Electronics Corporation listed on the back was OEMing the actual JC120 for Roland, or at least got a hold of a model and did a very faithful clone. When I look them up now, it seems like they just make PA speakers for the local market in Korea. No music equipment anymore, which is kind of sad. Uh, there's a few other small differences, like the lack of a bright switch on channel 1, and a weird-looking microphone or line-in setup on the back that can be panned in stereo. But all in all, this thing absolutely rips, and I'm extremely lucky to have come across a bet. Didn't you almost break it when you when you first took it apart? Okay, we don't need to talk about that. No, no I specifically remember hearing a really loud sound when you had it apart, before I could even ask you what it was you just yelled nothing what 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 happened with that share share with us what happened okay well uh like i said before working inside any amplifier can be dangerous doubly so when there's you know a very high wattage amplifier like this so if you don't know what you're doing please don't try opening up an amp at home take it to an experienced technician my issue was this thing ran on korean power which is 220 volts at 60 hertz here in the USA, we have 120 volts at 60 hertz. So the duty cycle is the same, but it's nearly double the voltage. Now, if you look at the back of some electronics, or sometimes on the power adapter, it'll tell you what your device can accept. Some can only accept voltages for the market they're designed for, and would require an entire transformer swap if you wanted to convert it to another region's power supply. However, some devices, like this one, you get lucky. And companies design these devices with either a universal power supply, where the input can accept anywhere from 100 volts to 240 volts, or they'll design them with a switchable multi-tap power supply, where you can simply flip a switch, replace a fuse, and they can now run at another market's voltage. So like when we go on vacation, my cell phone charger works almost everywhere, but I can't use my hairdryer. Exactly. It depends on the device, but things like cell phone and laptop chargers that primarily use DC power just need a simple plug adapter, while things that use high-power motors, heating elements, or incandescent light bulbs are generally more specific with what they want to see. This isn't a hard and fast rule, but it's generally pretty common. In fact, you guys at home can probably look around and see things like electronics chargers taking universal voltage, but things like vacuum cleaners or microwaves being pretty specific. So, in my effort to make this amp compatible, I had to hook it up to US power. The first thing I did was test it on a transformer to make sure that it actually, you know, worked on 220 volt. But because it had a voltage switch on it, I got really excited. It means it can run on both. So I swapped the fuse, I flipped the switch, and I fired it up ready to accept 120 volt. That bzzz that you heard was me absolutely torching the fuse. Because in all my excitement and juggling different adapters, I forgot to reconfigure the transformer itself to supply 120 volts. Right, so you broke it. No, I you, didn't. You broke it. No, I didn't break it. I just told the amp, like, hey, be ready to accept 120 volts. It's going to be less power than you've seen before. And then promptly forced it to take 220 volts straight to the face. 
Thankfully, the fuse did its job. I simply replaced the blown fuse, properly configured the transformer, and it was all hunky-dory. Either way, I'm loving this amp, and you can certainly expect to see it in future episodes. I've always wanted a JC120, but as primarily a metal player, I really couldn't justify dropping like $1,200 or so for a completely clean amp, so I'm really thankful that this sort of fell into my lap. Other than that, I did get to do some recording sessions with a local band. How did that go? It was really fun. Uh, they're a local group called CDC, and we did three tracks, sort of finished two of them. They were both rough mixes, but they're a local metal band, which is cool. I don't get to work with metal acts a lot, so it's uh, really fun for me to get to play around with uh, some people that play the same genre that I do. I also had a big moment of pride because their bass player wanted to record through that uh, beta lead clone that I built a while ago. He played it and he was like, oh, this is awesome. I want to track through this thing. And that was like, you know, a point of pride. Because, I mean, you know when something sounds good. Of course you do. But it always helps to, like, boost your confidence when you get an outside source that says, like, hey, this thing that you made, it's actually pretty good. I want to use it, too. Especially when they want to use it on a record. I mean, that was a blast. Um, got to do some cool effects. They let me get pretty liberal with the way that I mixed it. So I got to do some funky panning, uh, use a lot of the rack mount stuff on it, make it sound as good as I could for them. And uh, all in all, they were pretty happy with it. I was happy to get to work with a metal act. It was fun. All right, so I know we're going kind of backwards in this episode, but now that we've gotten through all of the other stuff that happened while we were gone, we can get into some of the news articles that we missed. And the first one that I want to bring up is the JHS Nauticlon. I am low-key kind of obsessed with this. I love the idea. Oh, well, it's a little older now than we usually do when we talk about the news, but um, it's still something that I want to hit on just because of how interesting it is. So if you haven't seen it, the Nauticlon is, well, a clon, but uh, it's a DIY kit made by JHS based on the clon centaur. The unique thing about it is it's made with like a certain Ikea style aesthetic to it i guess like the everything from the user manual to the name itself to the appearance of everything it's beautiful it's, yeah um when it came out it was only 99 bucks and they were sold out within like three hours they're still pushing to uh to make more and get more shipped out but it's just insane how quickly they were sold out of these the only currently available clon that jhs makes is this not a clon kit they don't have one in their regular lineup, so that makes it doubly so valuable. Um, there's a bit of unique points to this kit, like uh, it includes the JHS Shamrock mod, so that was one mod that they used to do to Klon-style circuits. Um, it even includes a tube of epoxy goop to cover the diodes. I That's love that so much. Yeah. <laughs> it just says goop on a tube. I mean, it's more of a joke uh, towards like how Bill Finnegan would goop the uh, entire circuit of the clon. What is exactly the point of goop, though? Well, so, okay. It's a way to protect intellectual property, I guess. Um, if I make a circuit, every component that I use has its value listed on it, whether it's colored bands on resistors or the actual stenciling on capacitors or the manufacturing numbers on ICs and transistors. If I were to make a pedal and ship it out to one of you guys at home today, you guys could open up the back of it, see exactly what I did, and clone it immediately. Goop was a way that people would basically pour like epoxy resin or some other opaque material on top of their circuit board so that you couldn't see what components they'd used. This goop would harden and it would be very difficult to get off and uh, you'd pretty much risk destroying the board or the components in the process. But recently, there's been a lot of ways that people have been able to remove goop from things to the point that now goop doesn't really protect your circuit. And in some communities, it's really seen as more like a you only goop things if you have something to hide, if that makes sense. Now, the one thing that does kind of make me upset about this kit is that there's no actual soldering here for a DIY kit. 
It's a pretty toolless setup, save for the nuts and the screws, which the PCB that it comes with actually has pre-printed wrenches on there that you snap out to tighten those. The only real thing that you do is put on the nuts and screws, put on the knobs, uh, put your goop over your diodes, and then uh, connect one ribbon cable from the motherboard to the daughter board. I feel like that kind of takes the fun out of a DIY kit. I mean, what do you think? You've seen me stress out over a bunch of DIY kits oh, before. Far too many. So I get what you're saying, but that also reminds me exactly of Ikea. You get, what, one little one little screwdriver to assemble all your furniture? Yeah, but that's different. It still comes completely in pieces. Like, it's not... I don't know. Maybe that's a bad analogy. I don't... I see it as like, okay, think of like a Lego sets, right? Yeah. Imagine, you know, you get a Lego set and everything is in pieces from the minifigures to the actual vehicle to the land surrounding it. Everything's in pieces. What this reminds me of is like if you had a Lego set and the minifigure was already put together, the vehicle was already put together and the backdrop was already put together and you just had to snap those three big pieces together. Like, yeah, for sure, it's easier and you don't need a soldering iron if you don't have one. In my opinion, it kind of takes the fun out of it. I'm, I, hmm, again, I get what you're saying, but also it's, it's, it's a joke. Like you just, it's a simple, a simple together thing. I mean, maybe someone would be interested in this, but they don't know how to solder and they're not interested in working with the actual circuitry. They just want to stick it together and haha, it's, it's not a clone. It's a little, you know? Yeah. I think you're just a little... You enjoy actually doing the electrical stuff a lot, even though you scream at it when you do it. Okay, there's no need to call me out like that. Oh, it has to happen. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think that's an inaccurate statement. I just feel like that's... <sighs> like me, I, I don't know anything about electricity, but if you... Like, your circuitry, see, I can't even do the words... But if you set that in front of me, I'd probably have a really fun time putting that together. I mean, you'd have a fun time for like five minutes. That's yeah. not that That'd long be a great to put five together. Minutes. Five minutes for $90. D 90 minutes of you screaming? For $12. <laughs> it's like, what, 10% of the price for triple the fun? I don't know. I. We can disagree a little bit. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, if you want to get into DIY pedals, this is a good way to start. I mean, it gets you used to, you know, mounting all the jacks and making sure everything fits in the enclosure and gives you some experience with the ribbon cable and tightening down, uh, you know, mounting nuts, I guess. But I would caution you from thinking that that's the full DIY experience. Like, if you want to get your feet wet, uh, all pedal makes some great DIY kits that you don't have to solder too much. You can just start with some of the larger components. Uh, all the ICs are already mounted on there. It's pretty easy and a pretty low threat way to get into it. A lot of the components that you use, you aren't capable like burning out or anything. Uh, so I'd go with all pedal if you wanted to start with DIY kits and then gradually move on to more complex builds. But this one, I feel like it's really skirting the line of what's a DIY and what's just some assembly required. I think you're taking it too seriously. Ah, whatever. So our next piece of news is a pedal from Boss called the IR2. It's a $200 amp and cabinet simulator from Boss. It's definitely not their first modeling amp simulator. You've got the whole Katana series, which is an actual amp, and the IR200 pedal from their larger form factor line. Now, this pedal is really interesting to me because it might take the cake for the most advanced pedal-sized amp simulator with controls for ambiance, level, gain, a 3-band EQ, and 11 different amp models. It's got an input, a channel switch, an effects loop, a stereo output, as well as headphone and USB-C hookups making this thing a powerhouse of an amp simulator in such a small package. It's definitely a big competitor for things like the Strymon Iridium and the Blackstar Amped. These demos sound absolutely great, especially on the rectifier and the tweed sounds. I'm a really big fan of them. They really fit 11 different amps in there? Oh yeah, they did. Like, I'm impressed. That is the regular boss compact format, and they fit so much functionality into it. 
it reminds me of like the uh, the boss SY1. That thing fit 121 different synth wow. presets in a compact pedal. But this thing honestly looks like a fully functional amp. It's basically a katana in a pedal that just doesn't have the oomph to drive a speaker cabinet. This is something that you could go direct to PA and be fine. And for only 200 bucks, I'm very impressed with this. So our last new gear release is something that I'm a little perplexed on. Uh, it's similar to the one that we just talked about. It's the Kemper Profiler Player. Kemper makes the big toaster-shaped amp profiler, right? Like it digitally clones your amp and your rig so you can store it within the Kemper? Yeah, they're a really high-quality profiler, too. I mean, Josh Scott used one on his channel for a year as an experiment to see if anyone could tell the difference, and nobody ever called him out on it. They're an increasingly popular solution for bands that are looking for stuff that's easy to transport or want to use multiple different amps in a set to cover a variety of sounds. Granted, all that functionality comes with a pretty hefty price tag in the realm of 1500 bucks for the cheapest version, and 2500 bucks for the most expensive 600-watt version that comes with a floorboard remote. Enter the Profiler Player, Kemper's almost budget-minded solution, a pedal with controls for four different effects, gain, a three-band EQ, rig volume and master volume, 20 onboard user-selectable patches, and a built-in noise gate and IR loader. It's got Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and MIDI connections, all for about 700 bucks. Now, the thing that kind of throws me for a loop, there's not a single effects loop on here. Just an input for your guitar, stereo out, headphone out, XLR direct out, and a spot for an expression pedal. Why make an amp simulator without an effects loop? Especially if this thing is designed to go on a pedal board, you're kind of limited now by the effects stored on the unit for what you want to place after your actual amp, since it does all the cabinet emulation and miking inside the box as well. While Kemper's definitely known as a premium brand, for 400 bucks, you could get the IK Multimedia Tone X, which has extremely similar functionality, down to the point that here you're really just paying for if you think the difference in their software is enough to warrant the $300 price jump. All these pedals really don't have that many controls on them for what they claim to do. That's honestly something that I'm pretty upset about as well. It's more like a personal thing. You got all these brands pushing out these devices that don't have a lot of onboard functionality, requiring you to use a phone or a laptop to control them. I get it. It's super convenient. You can make a really dressed up and intuitive UI. But my problem is what happens when I fall in love with one of these devices? Let's say that I love the profiler player, like I'm head over heels. Okay, great. I just keep, keep the pedal, use it every day, no problem. The issue arises years down the road when iOS or Windows updates, but the app for controlling the pedal doesn't. And now I'm locked out of editing my favorite piece of gear because the company stopped supporting it years ago. That's the big thing I'm worried about. I mean, you see it all the time in the industrial sector. You have people that specialize in creating brand new computers that still run Windows 98, XP, and Vista because they need those older operating systems as they're the only thing compatible to control different machinery or facets of a production facility. If you buy one of these pedals and you really like it to where you don't want to upgrade, you're now forced to keep around an old phone or computer to make sure you can always control it. It's something that really bugs me. Remote control is a great option to have, but I definitely don't think it should be required. You should be able to operate these things without an external device. I can agree with that. I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know, think about your Cricut, right? Mm -hmm. There's no way for you to use the Cricut without a computer. You, you can't. Well, so what happens when Cricut stops pushing out updates for the Explorer Air 2? be very upset <laughs> exactly you're forced to upgrade to their newest model and i really don't like that planned obsolescence it's something that really upsets me uh it generates a lot of e-waste that people are just throwing away electronics because companies stop supporting them and i get it there is a cost analysis of like hey are we really going to keep around developers to keep updating this legacy equipment when we have new stuff coming out but that's part of the problem in my eyes i mean you need to make equipment that can be operated on its own. You have access to the full functionality just in the equipment itself. You don't need some sort of remote controller. But, I don't know, 
I feel like this whole rant is giving old man yells at cloud energy. It, yeah, it kind of is. I wasn't going to say it, but <laughs> just letting you go. <laughs> I, that's fine. I, okay, maybe I am the old man that yells at cloud. So normally our fun fact comes in the form of music-related nonsense, but since it's the holiday season, I'm hijacking it this week. Um, okay. You getting bored of all the guitar talk already? Maybe a little bit. So, did you guys know that the current image of Santa we have, you know, heavyset guy with a red and white suit, actually comes from a political cartoonist in 1881? Almost everybody has heard the urban legend that the origin of Santa's appearance comes from Coca-Cola, and you wouldn't be crazy for believing it. I mean, a red and white suit perfectly lines up with Coca-Cola's colors. However, Santa's current appearance actually goes back even further than that. Coca-Cola merely adopted it. In 1881, Thomas Nast drew a little cartoon of Santa in a newspaper called Harper's Weekly, a political magazine that ran from 1857 to 1916 out of New York City, where one of its largest segments was popular illustrations from artists around the nation. Decades after seeing this, Coca-Cola adopted the imagery for their ads in the early 1930s after hiring an artist named Haddon Sundblom, who drew it on Nast's work. Wow. I mean, I've always heard people saying, yeah, Santa Claus comes from Coca-Cola. And yeah, for sure, it does make sense. Red and white suit, Coca-Cola's red and white. It completely makes sense. I mean, that's... Wow. I don't know. That that feels almost like a Mandela effect kind of thing. Yeah, it I, does. I know it doesn't really meet the definition of Mandela effect, but I fully believe that Santa was from Coca-Cola. That's what I always heard growing up. Huh. Well... Reach out over Facebook, Reddit, or email us at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com if you want to suggest topics or just chat about gear. You can also check out our website, pedalsandpickups.com, for more information on every episode, merch for the show, and all kinds of fun stuff. Speaking of merch, do you guys have this problem where you've gotten clothes that you're not going to wear for Christmas? Or whatever holiday you celebrate. We're not judging here. Do you have that problem? Yeah, I got a podcast shirt. Some some weird podcast I'd never heard of. I know you're not talking about this one. Don't side-eye me. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> well, if you don't know what you're going to wear, if your entire closet is filled with ugly Christmas sweaters, why not go on our website and pick up a Pedals and Pickups podcast shirt? They look super cool. They're super comfortable. And, uh... Yeah, they help out the show a little bit. Let us get some more gear to talk about and share with you guys and teach the masses about the wonders of our favorite instrument. If you like the show and you want to see it continue, consider supporting the show on Patreon. Every dollar goes right back into the podcast for hosting fees, gear, and equipment to make the show. Well, that's it for this week. If you guys have anything that you want to talk about, by all means, hit us up. Until then, we'll see you next time. Don't forget the gonculator. <laughs> what? Take care.